Welcome to Dodo History. This is your host, Mian. Today's topic is a very feel-good story, a pick-me-up for any activists or everyday folks that feel the odds of modern-day neoliberal capitalism are too stacked against us. I have an epic story for you. So this is about two ordinary, but also in a deeper sense, very extraordinary, very stubborn people who would just not give up on their convictions that fought the longest court case in English legal history. Those two people were Heaven Steele and David Morris, and this is the story of how they defeated the biggest fast food chain in the world, McDonald's. So this court case was set in motion on September 20th, 1990. McDonald's issued libel writs against five activists who were a part of London Greenpeace for distributing a pamphlet called What's Wrong with McDonald's? A little bit on the history of this pamphlet and London Greenpeace, the organization. They are not affiliated with Greenpeace, organi- uh, Greenpeace International, like the big organization that we know of. London Greenpeace was a much more radical organization composed of environmentalists, anarchists, anti-globalists, animal rights activists, libertarians, anti-nuclear activists, and pacifists, united around fighting for a more cooperative, sustainable future with non-violent action. Um, there was a real anti-capitalist under uh, undercurrent in this organization. And as I said, they were anarchists, so they weren't even incorporated as an official as an official nonprofit, which is why when McDonald's sued them, they had to sue individual activists. They couldn't sue London Greenpeace. And they weren't like some intimidating the kind of organization you would think a corporation like McDonald's would even worry about. They had around 30 active members and their leafletting really hadn't attracted any attention. Um, as leafletting tends to do. Now, the pamphlet in question had been circulating for four years since 1986, and London Greenpeace was not the only one distributing it. A food cooperative called Veggies, which I think was some vegetarian food cooperative, had been distributing it, and McDonald's had reached out to them, had asked them to change a couple of words around, like changing the word murder to slaughter, stuff like that, and then they allowed Veggies to continue distributing the leaflets. With London Greenpeace, they extended no such prior warnings, but this was also not uncommon. McDonald's had issued issued similar legal threats to at least 50 other news publications, including big names like Channel 4, Sunday Times, and The Guardian, as well as student organizations, trade unions, environmental groups, a Scottish youth theater group. McDonald's was going after everyone that criticized them, and they had all backed down and apologized without exception until now. So, after receiving the writ of libel, the government provided the five activists with only two hours of legal advice. In libel cases, you are not entitled to a lawyer. Or you weren't. Maybe the laws have changed. And in those two hours, they were basically told, you are out of your league, you need to just apologize. And three of the activists did back down and apologize. And I don't blame these people at all. I mean, they were already exceptional people for being activists and organizers. And the nightmare scenario was that they would be bankrupted before ever getting to court just in the pre-trial and their assets would be frozen and all future earnings given to McDonald's. That was a risk. But two out of those five, and in defiance of what the other, what the dozens of other activists and even what the other major news companies had done, those two refused to apologize, and those two were Helen Steele and David Morris. Steele was a 21-year-old, which is so crazy to me. I'm 21 now, and like seeing how much she did as a 21-year-old is so crazy. Um, vegetarian, she was a vegetarian London gardener, minibus driver, and later in the case, she would pick up a job as a bartender to support us. Uh, supplement her income. 
She had joined London Greenpeace in 1987, three years earlier, to fight for Aboriginal land rights in Australia, and she was really passionate about animal rights especially. Steele was really the original catalyst for this whole entire case. She was the first to say no, and this is a quote from her about why she said no. It just really stuck in the throat to apologize to McDonald's. I thought it was them that should have to be, that should have been apologizing to uh, society for the damage they do to society and the environment. And David Morris was a former postman where he had been involved with the union as secretary of their trade union branch. He was also a single father to his young child at the time. He had joined London Greenpeace as far back as 1978 to protest nuclear power, and by 1982, he had started regularly attending the group's meetings. When he learned that Steele was not going to apologize, he said, I thought I would go for it too because two is better than one. I believe he was a vegetarian as well. A lot of the article headlines were like, how two vegetarians took on blah, blah, blah. Um, and the two of them were activist friends. Soon after they received the writ of libel, they were able to engage the help of Keir Starmer, a member of the Haldane Society of Socialist Lawyers, who would give occasional pro bono advice throughout the process and later represent them in uh, when they went up the ladder uh, in appealing their case. By the way, Keir Starmer is now a labor MP, and he's like a moderate labor politician. Uh, he was the leader of the party for a couple years, too. Um, but at this point, he was still a uh, beginning pro bono, he did a lot of pro bono cases lawyer. The two activists also had the support of what they called the McLeibel Support Campaign, an international network of volunteers that organized protests and fundraised. And this will come this will come later, but uh, it is really cool because this case, so it was in the 90s, it really happened at the burgeoning of the internet and when people were first, it, it was like a really weird time in the internet. I wouldn't know because I was born in 1999, but like um, it was sort of a, they launched a website later, which was one of the first websites and they had this international network that was only enabled by the internet as well. And so many parts of how this came to be as a big event was because people were like first able to connect over. And we take that so much for granted today. Like so much of activism today is uh, very internet-based, um, but this was sort of an early example of the potential of that. So here is a somewhat ragtag group of passionate volunteers on one side and two vegetarian activists, um, and on the other side, McDonald's was able to hire Richard Rampton, one of Britain's top libel lawyers, and his big team of assistants, the best that money could buy, and at that point, Steele and Morris's combined income was around $12,000 a year, while McDonald's net worth was around $30 billion, um, and the McLibel support team was able to raise around $30,000 over the years, which was used to cover campaign and legal costs, and that may seem like a lot, but the costs added up. For example, getting court transcripts, which at first McDonald's had uh, offered to pay, but they started refusing to pay because they were using quotes from the transcripts to uh, give those quotes to the press and McDonald's didn't like that. Um, and so they had to start paying for that compared to that. And, and they had to pay, there's just like a bunch of legal costs that added up. Uh, and compared to that, McDonald's ended up spending $16 million on its legal representation. Um, and so, like, basically, when you calculate it out, what the McLeibel team painstakingly raised over six years, McDonald's spent in a week on legal assistance. So they were completely outmatched. 
and mcdonald's was also employing much shadier tactics to win as well this part is really weird so their vice president also happened to be a former police officer in south africa so that would be apartheid south africa he was also a former superintendent in london's metropolitan police his name was sydney nicholson and i could not find a single photo of him on the internet um nicholson oversaw a spy operation that spanned from 1989 so a year before they should issue the libel writs to 1991 they sent seven different spies into london greenpeace and at some meetings there were more spies than actual members and the spies would even spy on other spies because they were sent from two different agencies and they weren't telling they didn't tell the spies who else was also a spy they the spies would steal letters break into the office and take photos follow people home interestingly one of the spies fran tiller eventually became vegetarian switched sides and testified in court on behalf of the defendants the activists Nicholson also, the police guy, also used his connections from being a former London police superintendent to get Scotland Yard, which are the British police, I think, to use their elite special branch. This is the branch of police meant to track, like, big organized crime figures. Uh, they sent them to collect information on Steele and Morris. So they had spies from both the police and two different spy agencies going after this group of like leafletting vegetarians. And this whole part really now reads like a movie script. And there were so many weird stories to come out of this spy debacle like one of the activists got morris's address by offering to send baby clothes to his son which he did so the son was clothed in mcdonald spy funded clothes for like months or even years unwittingly and a lot of the spies would date women in the group so actually it recently came out a couple years ago that helen Steele was one of the victims she dated a guy for two years he promised a future with her like it was very serious and then he just left one morning with just a note and she wondered what had happened to him for years and it turns out he was an undercover officer um which is like so so unethical because i was actually watching a movie analysis of like different things that we think are normal like we don't think of as bad as they actually are and one of them was like how you can define if you're if you're really lying about your identity and having like sexual relations with someone that counts as sexual assault because like how can you give consent to someone when you don't know who they are like that's a very oh okay it's just so weird and so wrong and like the government was doing it um as this uh and as if this wasn't enough they were denied a jury they also had a bunch of legal disadvantages too not just resource disadvantages because mcdonald's argued the case was quote too complex for regular members of the public to understand despite the fact that they were expecting two regular members of the public Steele and morris they were expected to single-handedly defend themselves so they got a middle-aged white male judge and he was not sympathetic to them he allowed the issues to be tried in the order mcdonald's wanted and in his final judgment he would rule that a chicken spending their whole life without sunshine or free fresh air was not cruel that use of electric rods tail docking and teeth clipping were not cruel he was like suffering does not necessarily mean cruelty which I mean, all farm animal suffering is unnecessarily inflicted suffering, so I would argue that all farm animal suffering is cruelty, but even by very basic common sense standards, like even if you're not a vegan, like 
I come from that perspective. Getting a pig's tail cut off sounds like cruelty to me. It sounds like pretty common sense cruelty. So he was not a liberal or sympathetic judge, which is why there's actually a book on this whole trial. The book is called McLibel. I did not like it. I didn't I don't think I even I did not finish reading it because I felt like the writer was really trying to go for a both sidesism stance in the name of objectivity. Um, and the book was like a huge fan of the judge talking about his quote-unquote paternal kindness and warmth and how he was there as a guide to activists. Um, I'm not sure if it, and I'm not sure if this was the judge's decision, but the two were also later denied a two-week adjournment when they were really burnt out at the end of their ropes. Like they, this is two people fighting against the best legal team in the UK. They were really burnt out and they weren't even given a two, granted a two-week rest. And uh, another disadvantage for Steele and Morris was the burden of proof. Um, in U.S. libel cases, the libeled have the burden of proof. So we also have the First Amendment, uh, which has like free speech, which protects a lot of things. But in the U.K., the alleged libeler has the burden of proof, which is why this never came up in America. McDonald's never sued anyone in America, but they were threatening legal action left and right in the U.K. because they felt like they could win easier. And by the way, this feels so good because America is behind on like everything. So it feels good to have this one thing that we are better at or we're better at. I think we're better at because now UK libel laws have changed because of this case. But anyways, because of the British system, the burden of proof was on the activists who had to prove the facts of their leaflet. I think they had to prove like two out of every three facts in a section, the sections being like environment, health, etc. Um... And meanwhile, McDonald's did not have to lift a finger they, to prove that the leaflet had damaged their business. They didn't have to prove anything. And Steele and Morris could also only use primary resources to prove uh, that their assertions in the leaflet were correct. So, by the way, they never even wrote, they were not the ones that wrote this leaflet either. They just handed it out. So <laughs> imagine like suddenly having to defend this thing that the organization you are a part of was handing out and now you have to like delve into every little detail of that leaflet and defend it like that would be so stressful so um and so they could only use primary resources which excluded even peer-reviewed scientific journals um and of course mcdonald's wasn't going to give up any of their primary company documents um like where they sourced stuff from, etc., which meant Steele and Morris had to rely on witnesses, which McDonald's had the advantage in because they had more money to easily fly in witnesses. And there were actually some witnesses that took the stand for Steele and Morris. I think they had more witnesses actually, ultimately, because they flew out. They were able to get a bunch of witnesses from uh, that had been former employees at McDonald's, like uh, low wage employees. And they also had some more famous witnesses that you may recognize, T. Colin Campbell, Neil Barnard, who uh, are pioneers in plant-based nutrition, and George Mombiot, who is an environmental writer for The Guardian. So it was really cool to see crossovers from people I still seem to do a lot of great work today. Another turning point in their favor, which I touched on a little bit before, was the launch of their website called McSpotlight on February 16th, 1996, just at the dawn of the internet age. And there's a really cute photo of the two of them standing in front of McDonald's launching, launching their website on this big chunky computer. Um, 
and yeah it's like very very 90s and this was a tool for them to circumvent the mainstream corporate media and as of now it has over 65 million access hits and you can visit it yourself today you can just go to mix spotlight it's kind of an outdated looking website but it's really cool it's very historical as i said this trial dragged on it became the longest case in english history and twice mcdonald's asked to meet with steel and morse because regardless of the outcome of the trial the longer it went on the worse publicity it was for mcdonald's steel and morris secretly recorded these conversations and they have some weird snippets uh in the conversations in one part when they ask why they can't say things that are allowed to be said in america the mcdonald's negotiator says because you choose to live in a country where maybe you can't say those things for example they are caning people in shanghai um and then he quickly follows up with i mean that doesn't mean we're going to cane you but it's that was so weird because like how is morality is morality this flexible geographically dependent thing like oh this is the law in this country you choose to live here which is bs um you don't really choose to live in the country you live in usually so if it's a law it in that geographic region it must be right and like <laughs> it's so weird it's the same thing with like this is kind of a tangent but like how people are like oh well i guess it's okay to eat dogs in asia like because they don't want to face the fact that like oh i feel uncomfortable with people eating dogs in front of me and that shows inconsistency with uh how i comfortably eat dogs and like uh, comfortably eat pigs and cows and so when i bring that up to people as like when we're talking about veganism they're like well i mean if you're in for example i'm Jap- japanese if you're in japan eating like cow uh horses or dogs i guess that's fine because that's their culture but it's like morality is not geographic specific it's like it just it's much more it's not it's i'm not saying it's objective or subjective but it's not like yeah it's not geographically dependent for sure um anyways and then when morris asks if they'll stop them if they start handing out the leaflets again he says oh when steel steel asked that He says, I don't think you ought to hand out leaflets about McDonald's. I think you've played that card, Helen. You've done it. You've had your day in the sun. It's just so condescending. And so McDonald's refused to agree to apologize to the people they had sued in the past, and they couldn't promise not to sue in the future, so both rounds of negotiations fell through. After 40,000 yeah, 40,000 pages of documents and witness statements, 313 days of evidence and submissions. The final verdict for this trial was released on June 19, 1997, and it ruled that Steele and Morris had been able to prove the leaflet's claims that, number one, McDonald's exploited children in their advertising, and because of this trial, McDonald's had to actually release their operation manual. It took them years to get them to release it, but uh, when they did, they had to it was so gross it was like basically (laughs) the operation manual was just like get them while they're young manipulate children like they will become light like build bad eating habits while they're still impressionable uh number two they were also able to prove that their nutrition claims were false and this is so funny because mcdonald's doesn't dare do this anymore but back then if you look at their ads they were trying to market themselves a hamburger chain as a balanced nutritious meal serving establishment um and number three Steele and morris were able to prove the leaflets claims that mcdonald's paid low wages and were anti-union and number four 
contributed to animal cruelty. One of McDonald's witnesses actually agreed to the statement, as a result of the meat industry, the suffering of animals is inevitable. And this case is actually very unique in animal law because animal cruelty is usually tried under animal cruelty laws, but laws banning animal cruelty, like in the U.S., the Animal Welfare Act or the PACT Act, specifically in their text, they exclude farm animals and usually lab animals as well. So the definition of cruelty is warped and it's really hard to try uh, farm animal protection under animal cruelty laws because farm animals are just simply not protected. So we have these CFEs called, that stands for common farming exemptions, where if a practice is common in agriculture, it's deemed automatically okay, which again makes no moral sense and you're leaving the definition of animal cruelty up to people that profit off of animal exploitation. But this case, and this is called CFEs, you can just look up common farming exemptions if you want to research more into it because it is so weird. But this case was unique because it tried animal cruelty under libel laws. So animal cruelty was defined at least not by the farm industry. It was defined by this independent judge who was quite unsympathetic, which is why a practice animals wouldn't be protected from legally was still able to be judged as cruel because they were trying the veracity of these libel claims rather than whether a McDonald's was able to do this action or do this practice. However, they also lost on some issues. They were not able to prove that McDonald's was responsible for Amazon rainforest deforestation, but they also didn't have the money to fly to Brazil, so they were pretty limited in that way. The judge also ruled against them on linking McDonald's to heart disease, cancer, and bad working conditions. So they were found to have libeled on all these issues, which resulted in McDonald's getting rewarded for damages of around 98,000 uh, uh, 90 of, I don't, not around, damages of $98,500. Still, as Steele said, what would have been a loss is if we hadn't fought this case and we had been intimidated into silence. The two left the courthouse to huge cheers and held their press conference, which was more like a town hall meeting where Steele affirmed, we are not going to pay the damages, McDonald's don't deserve a penny, and in any event, we haven't got any money. Two years later, they organized Oh, two days, two days later after the court case, they organized a day of action where hundreds of protests were held at McDonald's around the world and half a million copies of the leaflet that was originally they were sued for were distributed in that week. At this point, you may have guessed McDonald's had confidently walked into what turned out to be perhaps the worst PR disaster of all time. They wanted this case to go away. They had already said they were not going to collect the money or stop them from distributing the leaflet. So essentially, they had lost this battle. McDonald's had lost to these two activists, despite the fact that the court had found the leaflet uh had been accurate in several of its accusations, McDonald's said the judge had been correct in his conclusion, so I guess they admit to exploiting people and animals. But anyways, Steele and Morris were not done. They did not think the judge had been completely correct in his conclusions. They appealed the case to a higher court and were able to win on heart disease and bad working conditions, which reduced the damages to $61,000, but they were still not done. And I have to say, if you watch this documentary, these two are so burnt out. Steele would talk about how she had nightmares about um, Richard 
uh, Rampton, I think, the opposing lawyer. She would have nightmares about McDonald's. This case had taken over their life. It was more than a full-time job. Morris hardly had time for his growing son. Like, there was an immense personal cost for these two, but they were not done, so they appealed again. Um, uh, after they lowered the damages, they appealed again, but they were rejected by the House of Lords. So what did they do? They sued their own government. It was Steele and Morris versus the UK, and they took their case to the European Court of Human Rights, where they not only brought the issue of free speech and censorship, but they also challenged the entire system of English libel law. And I believe this was the second time they had applied to the European Court of Human Rights. They did so once in 1991, saying they were not getting proper legal protection soon after the case began, but they were rejected, and the rejection is really ironic because it said, basically, you guys are doing a pretty good job of protecting yourself, so the system seems adequate. Uh, doesn't make any sense. Anyways, the second time at the European Court, now almost 15 years after they had first received McDonald's writ of libel in their mail. In February of 2005, they won both on the censorship and right to a, that they had been denied their right to a fair trial. After this victory, they went outside and held their press conference right outside of a McDonald's. They also sued the police for spying on them. That was settled out of court and they won a public apology and 10,000 pounds, as they should. Now, with all of this fanfare, what was left at the end? Well, British libel law changed, and I believe it was according to Keir Starmer in the McLibel documentary, this case would not even be brought to trial today under the current law, and it was a young Labour MP, Jeremy Corbyn, that sponsored a motion called McDonald's and Censorship to stop the use of libel writs to censor activists. And the leaflet, which McDonald's thought would be so easy to squash out, ended up being translated into a dozen languages and more than a 2 million copies were distributed worldwide. Unfortunately, there wasn't a major dent in McDonald's profits, but it led to a much more vigorous debate over the role of fast food and capitalism. And as of the documentary that uh, was completed in 2005 to sort of check in with our characters, um, I shouldn't say characters because that sort of <laughs> makes them one-dimensional, but... Um, to check back in with our people, Morris is back to more local activism. Uh, he is doing well. Seems like he has a better relationship with his son. Steele got a certificate as an electrician and lives in a co-op. And McDonald's reformed their practices and stopped harming animals in the environment. Just kidding. They did create a full-time position to oversee animal welfare issues, but um, they hired a guy who testified for them in the trial who said there was no cruelty whatsoever in McDonald's current practices, which the trial, again, done by a very biased judge, uh, showed was false. So, of course, corporations never take this stuff seriously. Um, I think this story resonated with me so much because I've leafletted, like, very few times, but it is demoralizing. It feels futile and, or futile, and activism in general can sometimes just feel like what's the point? Like, I'm just one small person, but to see how much McDonald's feared even these couple of activists leafletting, how much they feared the truth, basically, how much they feared the truth coming out, and as in the trial, the truth was coming out more and more, how much they got more and more scared, um, and went after, and how they went after these activists, and how much that got 
McDonald's, like, how much trouble that got McDonald's into. It's very inspiring. Like, it remind it reminded me that the truth is on our side, and we have to believe that the truth will eventually come out, even though there's all these factors like media, etc., and people being sheeple. Um, those factors are against us, but the truth will eventually come out, I hope. Um, and the ruling elite fear us. That was another big lesson of this story. And another, like, the lesson is really that they should fear us. Because look at these two. Like, they're so, they're just two, you know, leaf letters, gardeners, um, retired postmen, uh, just very average people. And yet they were so powerful, so dedicated, had so much integrity and, like, intelligence and capability to defeat this giant corporation, and they were armed with nothing but their their wits and the truth, basically, and so these corporations should fear us, and I'm going to finish off with how Steele and Morris responded when a journalist asked, so what is the alternative, meaning if we don't like the current world order, what do we want instead? And so the following is a clip from Mike Libel, which, by the way, you can watch on YouTube for free. But uh, yeah, I'm just going to play this clip. Okay, so we know you don't like corporations, but um, what's the alternative? The alternative is basically taking control of our own lives, our own communities, our own workplaces, and making all the decisions that affect our lives and, and affect the environment you know, deciding what happens to the resources, deciding what work needs to be done. People say, oh, it could never work, you know, you just have people going around and doing murdering and stealing and things like that. But actually, that's what happens in this society now. You know, you've got corporations and, and wealthy individuals that own vast swathes of the planet and deny other people access to them. And it's, it's basically stolen from everybody else. Obviously, there's always going to be problems in any kind of, you know, group of people or society or whatever. But you want to remove all the unnecessary problems. Uh, for example, poverty in the midst of plenty, or some people owning 50 houses and other people don't have a home to live in. Most so-called kind of antisocial behaviour is, is actually people fighting over the crumbs that are thrown from the table. The real people who are behaving antisocially are those that control all the resources and deprive other people of what should be shared amongst us all. If we remove corporations and governments who care only about profits and power and, you know, take things into our own hands, obviously that's basically transforming society. That's a revolution, uh, but not just on a single day, over a period of years building up uh, strong grassroots movements until one day we can take over all the decision making ourselves and look after our planet 